Hey ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Required Reading. And you can see I pronounced it correctly because I remember to remove my mask this time. I want to start out by saying this is a excellent episode, um, only because of course me and Mike are on it, and this is Mike's favorite book, so not to bias you in advance. But also, we tried to record this two and a half times before, uh, we got interrupted, there's bad audio, and so now finally getting it out feels like a huge load off. But in the meantime, I want to welcome you to another excellent episode. Our numbers have been growing, so I appreciate those of you who've been listening, but we're about to start a big marketing push. So do me a favor, recommend this to friends, write a review wherever you get it, and then we are starting up a Twitter feed. Follow us at required underscore pod on Twitter. Otherwise, feel free to write, review, and thanks. Welcome to Required Reading. Uh, this week we're talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby, the book that I'm sure you pretended to read at some point. This might be the most assigned book uh, in the U.S. lexicon. Yeah, arguably the great American novel. Uh, we can talk about that. Yeah, and uh, it's appropriate that we're doing this now, recording it now as it comes out. We're recording this the 1st of February, 2021, because it has now entered the public domain. That's right. Uh, so we're looking forward to the Muppet version, uh, Robot Chicken version, the SNL sketches, everything. That's what worries me a little bit before we get too much in this. I love this book, um, but I wonder if there's going to be a backlash, if it's going to be oversaturating our consciousness or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I think you're right, honestly. <laughs> Um, That's kind of the American way, isn't it? It is. It'll be interesting when the Great Gatsby coloring book comes out and the <laughs> the cocktail book. Pajamas, right? Yeah. It'll be. I don't know. Knows. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a matter of submersion in the art. Um, also, I guess we have to talk about F. Scott because this is the one work that everyone knows of him. Uh, and you've been doing your research. So uh, for those of you who don't know Marist, uh, the school we work at, uh, there's something we do called the evening series, and while I am peddling my dissertation and are my wares of medicine, you're doing a series of classes, in fact, and this one, the one that's happening tonight, yes. is on this book. So this is a warm-up for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, I pitched it. I'm doing three sort of singletons for the class. I did one on my Camino Santiago adventure. That was fun last week. And then I thought I'd just do two novels that I love. And it'd be fun to talk to adults who choose to be in the classroom as opposed to teenagers that might reluctantly read or pretend to read the books. Um, and so tonight's is on The Great Gatsby. And then next week is on um, The Things They Carry, the Tim O'Brien novel. So it'll be interesting to see what they say tonight. Um, but I've been going deep into Gatsby and I've over my last you know week or so of research for a novel that I've taught for 20 years have grown to appreciate it even more. Sure. So, so you mentioned your experience at Marist as a student. Do you remember reading it? I remember reading it in high school, and I was a reader, and I liked it, and I liked reading in general. I don't know that I appreciated it fully. Sure. Who does at 16? Um, but what was your experience as a student? Well, I mean, I remember it in terms of liking a main character named Nick. That's easy. Of course. Yeah. That's a gimme. Um, but also, like, yeah, it, it, it seems like... In some ways, it's a critique on the fantasy that teens have as what it is to be an adult. 
right? Parties and like, because again, I'm, Marist is a college prep school. Everyone goes to college. And so like, yeah, that's, that's what it seems like. I'm going to be in my late teens, early 20s. There's going to be parties and it's going to be crazy and it's going to be fun. Like, and there's consequences here. Um, but it's really funny that the two books you're doing are this and Tim O'Brien, because Tim O'Brien is such a, a person attached to Vietnam and it's such a specific book to a specific era about the boomers who fought and you as a Gen Xer, like getting into it from that perspective. In many ways, this is a timeless book, right? Like there's things that I recognize in this, even at the time that like I had to keep reminding myself, this is supposed to be the twenties. Um, as opposed to say, you know, the, the, the cocaine eighties or something. Right. But these are, these are high flying people. There's, there's substances and drugs and parties and overwhelming. And our narrator at the center of it is someone who feels like he is in the world, out of the world, not part of the world. It's, 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 it's complicated. Yeah. That's what I've grown to appreciate is that, that fine line. I think that's why it endures what you're alluding to is that, um, Nick is both infatuated by gas and he says Gatsby represents everything I had unaffected scorn for. So he, he sort of loves him and hates him. And you're walking that fine line. Um, and this has that same sort of feel about the American dream in itself and reinventing itself. That's a good thing. And then oh, are we fooling ourselves? Right. And it sort of straddles that. And I think it ebbs and flows through our history. I mean, there's boom times and there's bust times. And, um, yeah, the novel is just ambiguous enough, I think, that... Uh, adapts to any time period. That's what is really incredible um, for, for many reasons. So um, one thing, I'd, if we want to go there already, just the history of it. So Fitzgerald, well, I don't know. Let me pause here and, and you can edit this out. Do we want to go into the sort of the history of him and Fitzgerald's arc, or do we want to just look at the book itself, or what do you think? We can talk about the book in like the historical context with him, because okay. like it, it matters here. Like this is the book where he obviously he breaks, right? Like he was the literary darling of the American world, and then this book is awful, like re received terribly, right? And sort of mid to meh kind of reaction. Like some people got it, most people didn't think it was much, especially since his last couple books were huge. Yeah, so. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so just to back up then or start again. So Fitzgerald was like he and Zelda were the it couple uh, in the 20s. Um, and they sort of could do no wrong as far as celebrity. And I didn't realize, I guess I knew, but Zelda was 19, 18, 19. Fitzgerald's 22. And they are, you know, you give all that money to a 19, 20-year-old today, they're going to go crazy, which is what they did. And they were sort of this crazy manic couple everywhere and he's after he wrote um well we'll back up a little bit he met zelda when fitzgerald was stationed in montgomery uh, in the army thinking he's going to get shipped overseas and that never happened but he falls in love with this rich girl this uh, society girl from montgomery uh gets engaged but essentially the family says hey you don't really make enough money um he says i'll show you and goes back to new york and tries to crank out a novel, um, get a job in ad agencies, kind of flops there, and then goes back to his parents' house. So there's a sort of millennial arc, right? He's a, right. He's a boomerang kid. Um, and then finishes This Side of Paradise there, and uh, it sells, and he gets a contract, and then suddenly he's okay to marry Zelda and the family. Right. 
um, and then they become a huge success. And then out of that, he publishes also The Beautiful and the Damned, which I've not read. You read that? No, but it's like just two years later, too. So yeah. like he is now on fire, mm-hmm. right? And then he's commanding all sorts of you know high fees as a magazine writer and, and doing well that way. And they're living in Great Neck, uh, which is essentially the inspiration for uh, West Egg and East Egg in the novel. And then they go overseas and are living in the Riviera and, and writing and just sort of living large uh, as he's writing this. But when it finally comes out in 25, there's kind of like, right. no one gives it much credit. Um, and it sort of is the beginning of the end. Their marriage has fallen apart. Zelda is um, exhibiting mental illness that she's in and out of hospitals for after that. And um, it just gets sad really it's sort of america loves their eyes and then we watch the fall of him and to the point where i read this weekend his final royalty check he moves to hollywood and tries to make it as a, a screenwriter kind of washes out there as he's drowning in alcohol but his last royalty check was for 13 dollars and 13 cents um and for books that he had all bought himself apparently just sort of trying to dole it out to friends or whatever so he dies thinking this is a failure um and there's a great letter um, and I'll just put in a plug. There's a book called So We Read On by Maureen Corrigan. She's a critic on the NPR Fresh Air. She's a Georgetown professor as well. Um, and she cites this letter in May 1940, and I think he died in December 40, um, so not long before his death. He says, I wish I was in print. It will be an odd year or so from now when Scotty assures her friends that I was an author and finds that no book is procurable. Would the 25-cent press keep Gatsby in the public eye? Or is the book unpopular? Has it had its chance? Would a popular reissue in that series with the preface, not by me, but by one of its admirers? I can maybe pick one, make it with a favorite with the classrooms, profs, lovers of English prose, anybody, but to die so completely and unjustly after having given so much. Even now, there's a little published in American fiction that doesn't slightly bear my stamp. In a small way, I was an original. So it's just like so desperate. Um... And I learned this as a, you dive into Fitzgerald's biography. He was a fairly, fairly needy guy, a sort of high-maintenance person. So he's sort of pouring his heart out here and feeling like a failure. Um, and he was. I mean, uh, it dies um, with a whimper, not a bang, so to speak. Well, and I mean, it's, it's so interesting that it comes out in 25. You'd think it would be a hit because it's all about the big culture, right? Like the, the, the rich and the, the powerful of the Roaring Twenties. And yet, like, I imagine when the Great Depression hit, it completely bottoms out. Because, like, who wants to read about that crap when exactly. people are starving to death? Right. Um, and I know it gets its second wind later. Uh, his last book is what? Tender is the Night? Uh, uh, yeah. Which, um, yeah, that's right. And, and then, like, there's an unfinished book that gets finished after he, he, he dies. But Yeah, Last Tycoon. Last Tycoon. Uh, Edmund Milt Wilson, his buddy from Princeton, and actually sort of revived his career. Uh, later wrote that. But you're right, yeah, he was associated with the rich and glamorous, and as, as we slide into the 30s and the depression, out of touch with the zeitgeist, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, and uh, ultimately, I guess we'll talk about how this book kind of gets its stride as we kind of progress here, but uh, how do you, as someone who's taught this book now for almost two decades, how do you get into this book with the students? Um it, it, well, what's so accessible about it is it's short. I mean, let's just talk about American attention span. 
it's only 182 pages long or something. That's really short. Yeah, that's my version. Um, and so I think that's not intimidating for kids. Like they think, oh, I can read that. And the chapters are so tightly written that it's easy to assign a chapter a night and the kids can get through that on their own. It's very clear. Um, and yet at the same time, it's so well-crafted that there's so much in there. I mean, there's the obvious symbols of the eyes you have on the cover, the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg, the green light, um, all that sort of is easy for kids to grab onto. Even if they're not typical sort of English kids, it's accessible enough for them. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have to sell it much. I mean, it's got glamorous parties and cars, and I think it's 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 sexy in that way that kids... Well, and I'm drawn it's, to it, and it's a perfectly constructed narrative. Oh like, my God, yeah, we're, we're drawn into this world. Like it, do, you don't, you don't need a lot of background. Like, and uh, this is no critique on you, of course, but like English teachers almost feel the urge to over-explain this book. Right. You can get drawn in immediately because Nick is such a good, and whether or not he's an honest like narrator, we, we will get to. But like his being pulled into this world, whether he's trying to justify himself or not. It's so honest. It's so intriguing. He is so compelled in this kind of, in his sexual world, it's almost in an asexual way. Like, it's his cousin. It's his friend. It's people who are very macho. Toxic masculinity is all over the place. Right. But not Nick. Nick, Nick. No, he's watching these two alpha dogs, you know, being Tom and, and Gatsby battle over the prize, Daisy. And he's just sort of along for the ride. And what a ride it is. Yeah, and, and for him, who in many ways is Fitzgerald, right? He's he's looking at his own success from an outward because Nick also is supposed to have gone to an Ivy League school, right? Nick went to Yale and Fitzgerald went to Princeton uh, in the same way that Nick, and you're exact, exactly right, Nick is of this class but not exactly. So Fitzgerald was sort of, he always described himself as the poor boy in the rich school. I mean, right. he, he was doing okay, but not the level of some of his peers at the time. Well, and it also seems to me, reading this, that both Nick and maybe Fitzgerald want to fit in but can't. Like, in the way that, say, like, Hemingway, Hunter S., the people we were talking about before, they make their own niche. Like, you want to be with Hemingway. But Hemingway doesn't care if he's part of the society. Fitzgerald really feels like he wants to be there. And Nick definitely wants to be there. Oh, absolutely. And that, that, that almost is more tragic, in a way. I mean, not that any of these guys have a happy end from The Lost Generation, but still. Right, and then, so that... that... Again, one of those eternal themes in American, you can begin again, you know, reinvent yourself as, as Gatsby himself does, uh, and Fitzgerald does himself in his own life. But how much of that is true? And then can you go too far? Or is that really just a lie that we keep telling each other? Is that a myth? And so I think that's something that we as Americans struggle with, um, with the idea of class and reinvention uh, is what partly resonates with the novel over time. I certainly didn't get that as a high school student, but... Um, yeah, what's great about it is it grows with you. Every time I read it again or teach it, I see new things still. Yeah, no, and, and, and we were talking about how your course is going to work. I, I am excited to see what the parents have to say, like, because I don't know, at the end, when we've taught this before, the kids seem to enjoy it, mm -hmm. even in the few years that I've done this with you. Um, but again, as an adult, I enjoy it much more. It's the same thing with previous episodes, Scarlet Letter. Where I, I mean, as a high schooler, I didn't get it at all. And now as an adult, I'm like, yeah, of course kids should read this. This, yeah. is, this is excellent. I think that's half the battle with, is just picking a book that they'll read first. And, and there's, that's a victory in itself. And then you can hook them on other things as you go. Um, but I think this is accessible enough that they can think like, oh, I can get the English teachery things of, of the symbol of the eyes. 
or the car crash or whatever. It's pretty clear that way, yeah. which is great in itself. And then as you teach it or as I teach it over the years, you realize there's so much more depth to it. And it's really almost the perfect novel as far as the way it's constructed. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, totally. Who do you want to talk about? What do you want to talk? There's so many. I mean, here's the, that's one thing I'm realizing as I'm prepping for this class. There's no way I can possibly <laughs> teach the novel in two hours, like for the evening class. Nor can we do it justice in in one podcast of it. Well, I mean, our podcast is probably going to be an hour. Or anything, and that's literally <laughs> half your course. And we uh, we're 20 minutes in, and we haven't even gotten. We haven't to the started damn novel. anything. So yeah, it's going to be a long night. <laughs> going to be a long night yeah so i'm going to have to just text you constantly tonight and just see how it's going <laughs> um yeah all right i mean we, we can talk about these characters in a little bit uh we talked about nick already uh nick caraway um is a reporter journalist type in this I, I, well i guess here it's not as clear the baz lerman one he's a stockbroker uh <laughs> Right, which is true. I mean, in in the novel, Nick is a bond salesman. So, we, but we, like here, we see almost none of him actually working. He's just in his house. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and his house is in the shadow of this mansion, uh, controlled by Gatsby, um, who we don't even meet for the first three chapters. Really, um, we're introduced, on the other hand, across the lake, uh, the the egg, uh, to his cousin, uh, and her his cousin's husband. Right. So, um, what's great about the way Fitzgerald has structured this is Nick is sort of the ultimate narrator. Uh, as we said before, he's sort of on the fringe of all the action, but reserved enough. I mean, he says in the opening line, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, uh, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. So he's sort of on the edge there. And it, it's whether or not that's true uh, that he's reserving judgments. Um, I mean, he's well, I mean, yeah. We can even get even before that. The ironic thing is the first thing, quote we have is uh, his dad tells him, whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people of this world haven't had the advantages you've had. We're about to talk about the most advantaged people. Exactly, right. <laughs> like the irony here is phenomenal. And that's the like literally the first line. I, I love it. Yeah. So yeah, these are people of a certain class. Um, and he says he's reserving judgments, but clearly he's not. But that's like in the title itself, The Great Gatsby. How do you read that? And so when I start the class off and say, how can you, what does great mean? Is it big? Is it monstrous? Is it sincere? Like, man, that was great. Yeah. Is it sarcastic? Um, I think it can be all those things. Well, and I know we're going to try to outquote each other because you're preparing for a class. But on page three, he even has the line, like, I graduated from New Haven just a quarter of a century after my father and little later participated in the great Teutonic migration known as the Great War. He's playing with the word great immediately, yeah. right? Uh, and just to sarcastically call it the Great Teutonic Migration, right? That's that's something. And, and you do know what he's playing at because... He and, and Gatsby, we find out later, ultimately essentially get their gravitas, their importance from fighting in a war to enter a world where none of that matters. You know? Um, yeah, because, um, yeah, Tom Buchanan, the uh, opposition, didn't fight in the war. Um, and it doesn't hurt his class status at all. That's right. Um, later on. Yeah, and so just back to Nick as a, as a clever construction of a narrator uh, on page two. Um, he says, when I came back east last autumn, I felt that the world, I wanted the world to be in uniform and sort of a moral attention forever. I wanted no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. I mean, man, just great writing at the sentence level. Um, 
only the Gatsby, Gatsby uh, the man who gives uh, his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I had an unaffected scorn. So there's there's the contrast right there. He likes him, but he represents everything he hates, and that sort of push and pull of, again, the American dream is something you should strive for, or, you know, it's full of it. And just, I don't know, it's just really um, lovely the way he's written that. Um, if personalities is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there is something gorgeous about him, some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life. So essentially, it's also a theme, a book about hope. You know, and we yeah. talk about Americans being hopeful and, and optimistic, and that's certainly a theme in our class. Um, and it applies to Gatsby as he's hoping. So, um, where do we want to go? Like, just plot-wise, what do you, what do you want to? How do you want to? Well, what I think we should forward? do is is go through the book and introduce characters as we're introduced to them. So okay. at this point, we have Nick, who is living in what he calls like an eyesore compared to other eyesores. Uh, in the shadow of Gatsby's house, right? And Gatsby were alluded to a lot before we meet, right? right? Um, and literally he looms large over the storyteller even before we were introduced to him. Yeah, so the great Gatsby also has sort of that uh, sort of sound of like a mis magician of some sort. So right. mysterious, he's going to appear, you're not going to know where he appears from or about him, and Gatsby definitely has that, that air of mystery about him. The great Gonzo, for example. Exactly, yeah. yes. Um, but, and I mean, more specifically, again, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, Martha's Vineyard or something like this is just a neighborhood of incredible houses and you're the dude in the shack. Yeah. And, and so like immediately you have to be introduced to Nick as someone who is perfectly aware because he goes to school with these guys. These are the Ivy leaguers that like the, the, the captains of industry, right? The people who pull the levers of power. And he's the only one who apparently hasn't succeeded. <laughs> or relative to their success. Yeah, exactly. You uh, know. But then again, to the point of a reliable narrator, how reliable is he? Um, but also another thing that's easy to hang the hook on um, for the kids is the idea of old money versus new money. Sure. You, know, you want to talk about that? Well, I mean, uh, we're talking about the great Gatsby. Uh, and Gatsby uh, is someone who makes his money through illicit means that we'll get to, Right. But the Buchanan... Still vague, though. Still very... Right. Vague yet menacing. I mean, these, these are the people on Wall Street, uh, bu uh, bargains who got the GameStop thing. Like, it's so funny that we're seeing this play out again because it's... <laughs> every time, yeah. Great Gatsby. Every time we bring it up, it comes back around. Uh, Wall Street bets, excuse me, WSB. Um, on the other hand, we have uh, the Buchanans who are money from money from money from money. Uh, they've been to Chicago. They've been to New York. They're just money within money. And they go back to the Mayflower like all these waspy types. Shockingly rich even among this class. Yeah. And, um, you know, we have the women who are around her, uh, him, rather, Buchanan, uh, Daisy, that we've talked about, and Myrtle, who we'll get to. No, not Myrtle. Uh, who's the friend? The, Jordan Baker. Jordan. Although Myrtle is in the mix there for sure. Jo uh, Myrtle will get there because that's like mistress number seven. Mm -hmm. Um and she, of course, is the kind of third act, tragically. Right. Um, but yeah, so th the idea of old money versus new money in America is something that's kind of always been there, right? It's the discomfort we have with, like, you know, the Bushes and the Clintons who come over on the Mayflower, effectively, versus these young upstarts and, you know, uh, the social networking billionaires that we're talking about now. It's it's the truth. Right. So, we, yeah, we say we value the self-start, but we're also fixated or fascinated with the idea of the royalty or celebrity or whatever lay we want to put on that. But 
Yeah. Um, and again, this book is prescient because we have these uncontrolled levers of power that every so often it feels like they can be manipulated by someone else, and we're really confused by that. Um, let me read the part about Tom. So when we first meet Tom... Great, um, great quote. Great introduction to a character. Just as uh, backup, Tom and uh, Nick, the narrator, are sort of old-school eating society uh, buddies together in their New Haven years. Um, he had changed since his New Haven years. Now he was a sturdy, straw-haired man of 30, with a rather hard mouth and a supercilious manner. Two shining, arrogant eyes had established dominance over his face and gave him the appearance of always leaning aggressively forward. Not even the effeminate swank of his riding clothes could hide the enormous power of that body. He seemed to fill those glistening boots until he strained the top lacing, and you could see a great pack of muscles shifting when his shoulder moved under his thin coat. It was a body capable of enormous leverage. A cruel body. That's a great line. Man, it's so good. And then just, as again, it's great on its own sort of surface reading the first time through. But as you spend a lot of time with the novel, it's so tight. I mean, there you have the eyes establishing dominance. You know, the theme of the eyes and the sort of idea of voyeurism and people watching, Nick watching, Gatsby watching, Daisy layered in there really cleverly, um, tightly throughout. And then just the idea, and I spend some time on this in class usually when we talk about capable of enormous leverage, a cruel body. So leverage meaning what? What sort of physical power, but also social leverage? I mean, Tom has got everything going for him, um, and he knows it, and he uses it to get whatever he wants. Right, right. Um, so yeah, he's a great character, sort of the guy you hate to hate, love to hate. Well, and again, like the way to describe him, it's like he was an athlete, and he's got that... He's one of those guys who, like, you know, maybe was a football player nowadays. Well, he was, yeah, he was a star, yeah. And and like, and he still has that that mass to him, but he's now thirty, so he doesn't think about sports. But or all he does is think about sports, but he doesn't participate, right? Yeah. So that that description of the cruel body and the shifting muscles, you picture that guy, right? He's the guy who does yacht racing, right? Like he's he, he he's at the regatta, like that. That's who he is. Everything is a competition. Everything is a competition. He's used to winning, and he'll make sure he wins everything. Yeah. Right. Um, and then later they walk in the room, and here we see Jordan and Daisy. Uh, well, just to back up, Jordan is a sort of a debutante friend from Daisy. Daisy Buchanan married to Tom, um, and she's sort of just in that circuit. She's a, a golfer. But Daisy is the main character and also happens to be Nick's cousin. Um, so I can read a quote about that if we wanted. Sure. Um, so they walk in and uh, the wind is blowing around in the uh, air. And, and it's just sort of a nice idea that literally they're sort of floating on the air. They're sort of that upper, upper class, upper crust. Uh, and then Tom comes in, shuts the windows, takes the air out of the room, because that's, that's Tom. That's what he does. Right. Um, and then Nick says, um, I looked back at my cousin who began to ask me questions in her low, thrilling voice. It was the kind of voice that the ear follows up and down, as if speech, each speech is an arrangement of notes that will never be played again. Her face was sad and lovely with bright things in it, bright eyes and a bright, passionate mouth. But there was an excitement in her voice that men who had cared for found it difficult to forget. A singing compulsion, a whispered, listen. A promise that she had done gay, exciting things just a while since, and that there were gay, exciting things hovering in the next hour. Um, just the idea of the bright, sad, uh, 
lovely face, you know, as echoed in the cover art. And we can talk about what Fitzgerald sort of was inspired by that. Um, but it's all right there in Daisy's voice, which we learn later is full of money. And that's what um, Gatsby thinks. If I get money, I'll get Daisy. All right. And it doesn't work out, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and something we can talk about here, too, is a lot of the problems with the Lost Generation is writing for women. Uh, the women have no agency in this, really. She she gets one choice, and she chooses to stay with Tom. Yeah. Um, I mean, and... That's true. You know, I mean, and Jordan is not exactly... Other than talking a big game, she's not exactly an active character. Um, I mean, and again, I mean, we compared him to Hemingway earlier. It's not exactly like Hemingway wrote a lot of bright characters uh, that were female. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting. I, I mean, there's a lot of sort of uh, biographical research trying to trace what Fitzgerald lived through, and he did translate a lot of his life into his fiction. But Zelda, his wife, was a super strong personality, and, and she helped edit these uh, and helped him edit and revise. So it would be interesting to see what those conversations were as he's writing these characters. Yeah, I mean, it, and p perhaps then even some of her indecisiveness comes from Zelda's own schizophrenia. Could right? be, right. Because, I mean, and it depends. There's a thousand ways that that presents itself, but she is a very schizophrenic character at times. Um, you know, kind of waffling back and forth between what she wants, who she wants, and ultimately the the finale is it's a it's very much a manic episode. Yeah, and, um, and to your point, she she has the opportunity to make decisions, but never does let a, lets other people do that. Um, and whether that's a lack of responsibility, lack of self agency, or just lazy i don't know yeah it's, it, it's, it's, she's it, a troubling character for sure it is and it's it's so interesting because all of these are impure characters right all of these are scarred horrible dark people like and we'll, we're, we're almost to gadsby finally but like there's this kind of almost twitchy way he says old sport like it, it like he ejaculates it out as though he's fitting into a society which he's never fitting into it's just interesting that all of these characters get their come up it's kind of Except for Daisy in some ways. It, and yet Except Daisy, for the people that deserve it, right? Yeah, the exactly. innocent people are the ones that get their come, come up. And... Uh, it is, I mean, and then we end up with, uh, well, we'll get, uh, we'll, we'll get there. Like, it's just, it's such an interesting structure to a story. Um, feels like almost like a French or an Italian film where you're, you're getting a chunk of life. And at the end, the, the resolution isn't satisfying in some ways. Right. Because that's how life is. Um, well, and that's how Nick is telling this novel. Like, he, he wants no more riotous excursions. So he, he's already teasing it, that something's going to happen in this novel that's so discouraging and disturbing that he's, you know, in the sort of frame story narrative, writing this down as his sort of therapy, which was what Lerman does. He's blurring the lines in his film with Fitzgerald's own alcoholism trying to dry out. So right. I, I know some people gave, I like the Lerman film. Um, I do too. But it's an interesting overlap, like Fitzgerald. Nick in the novel is not an alcoholic or anything, but... Um, he's clearly an alcoholic. He's like, <laughs> I mean, like every party, he, there's just booze everywhere. And he's just like, my goodness, my coffee is a little too warm. Like, it's just, I, 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 I you were the one who brought up the idea that he's not a trustworthy narrator all the time. I, I think he, he projects on how bad, like... He's still drinking a bottle of whiskey at one of these parties. Yeah, you wonder. I mean, he's, uh, at one point he says, this is the first time I've been drunk in my life. And yeah, yeah come I mean, on. come on. You, yeah. you were at a drinking club with Tom at Yale. Right. And, and knowing what we know about Fitzgerald, that would be incredible restraint. Yeah. Because uh, that's something he struggled with his whole life. Um, yeah, so that's uh, Daisy. And then, uh, again, reading this through and, and teaching it, but I never clearly saw the idea that she's a siren. 
right? And she is across the water drawing. It's her voice that's full of money that draws um, everybody in. And, and, she's, and she's charming in a way that is irresistible. And right. I, I hadn't thought of that before. To crash upon the rocks, exactly. right? Exactly, yeah. And there's all sorts of water imagery, too, in the novel. Um, and at the beginning, it talks about... Um, let me find it real quick. Um... No, Gatsby turned all, all right at the end. It's what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. It's already like the wake of his dreams of the water imagery there. Ultimately, Gatsby's end is water-related. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so she's a siren. I never thought of that before, and I feel like an idiot for, for not noticing that. No, it's it's good. It's It's a book that unfolds over the decades. Yeah. Um, Gatsby, you want to talk about Gatsby? We could read some quotes. Um, sure. I mean, well, uh, here, let's, let's sort of get to the interesting sort of dilemma of, um, of Nick. So he's the cousin of Daisy and we'll find out. And so there's, it's an awkward cousin, someone he doesn't really know too much. And in this first meeting there, she's having dinner uh, with Nick. And what I love about Nick and the humor in the novel that you definitely don't get the first time through is he like the king of awkward silences and the squirmy moments that are just so awful, uh, but so delicious for con conflict as a writer. And so they're having dinner, Jordan and Nick and uh, Tom and Daisy, and the phone rings and we learn that it's uh, Nick's mistress, or not Nick's mistress, Tom's mistress. Right. And sort of everyone in the room knows that that's what's going on, but no one will speak to it. And it's just this awkward, awkward silence there. Well, and uh, in in the Lerman version, they 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 nail it. It's Toby McGuire, and he's like uh, all befuddled. He tries to speak up, and Jordan's like, "Shut up! We're trying to <laughs> this hear." This is the good stuff. Yeah, we're trying to eavesdrop in, uh, which is it's just it's perfect. And then later uh, in the party, Daisy pulls uh, Nick aside, and they're just sort of catching up. And she talks about having a baby, and there's a little baby in this uh, Pammy, um, who really gets no attention at all. Daisy's not a good mother. Um, and she says, uh, when telling Nick the story of when the baby was born, um, she told me it was a girl, and so I turned my head away and wept. All right, I said, I'm glad it's a girl, and I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. Right. And man, what a line. And apparently that's what Zelda said when Scotty was born, which, man, man. Damaged. Like, <laughs> these are such damaged people. I mean... But again, like just just think about doing this from a like just a perspective of all these cast members and like in a movie or in a book or whatever. Like you've got Joel Edgerton as Tom against Leo DiCaprio's Jay Gatsby, and like it's it's all testosterone on the screen. And like you're just I don't know. Like if you're the if you're trying to be Jordan Baker, you're sitting at the boys' table. And that's that's what this whole movie is. And so when we're getting to Gatsby, which is where we're getting here, like he is a presence without being a presence. Like we have the montage in the movie and in the book where they're like, "I heard he killed people." Like, <laughs> I heard he's in the pocket of the mafia. Uh, that one turns out to be true. Um, right. I don't know. It's just it's so fascinating how you you essentially put all these people in a room and they just tear each other apart, right? Yeah, he's, he's crafted the conflict so well and just with a couple sentences packs the backstory enough to make you wonder how are they going to deal with this or what's going to happen and and leads you on. 
Uh, before we get to Gatsby, though, uh, the next day, um, or in the next chapter, uh, Nick gets literally like, there's so many scenes um, where Tom is physically grabbing Nick and like taking him to meet his mistress. Yeah. And they go through the Valley of Ashes and they meet uh, Myrtle, um, who is Tom's um, mistress from a. Let me find the passage there. Um, She was uh, in the middle 30s and faintly stout, but she carried her surplus flesh sensuously as some women can. Her face, above a spotted dress of dark blue, crept the sheen, contained no facet or gleam of beauty, but there was an immediately perceptible vitality about her, as if the nerves of her body were continually smoldering. She smiled slowly, walking through her husband as if he were a ghost, shook hands with Tom, looking him flush in the eye, then she wet her lips without turning around. Um, to her husband and spoke in a soft, coarse voice. Um, so right there, she is smoldering. Where does she live? The Valley of Ashes. It, it, the symbolism is pretty uh, clear for the kids. And in the Valley of Ashes, there's the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg, an old uh, optometrist who's looking over, which later we learn are the eyes of God. It's right. an easy symbol for the kids to get. But the, the eyes are looking over this, this ash heap, this garbage land. Um, which is maybe Fitzgerald's prescient comment on the jazz age itself and where it's headed and just sort of, you drive this hard, you party this hard, there's going to be a crash. Uh, you burn so fast, there's going to be ashes as a fallout of that. And so I think that's really clever. And apparently he was very influenced by T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and, and sent him a copy in, in the Valley of Ashes as the tip of the hat to, to The Wasteland. A poem which apparently you do not care for. It's just so dense. I mean, <laughs> you need, I mean, Elliot had to write his own footnotes for that. And some yeah. of them were faked, but um, it's just tough to teach. It's really tough to it teach. It is tough to so, teach. Uh, I don't go there teaching it. Well, and if, I mean, again, the, the, the geography of this imaginary town is sometimes hard to trace, but we're essentially going from like Westchester mansions or the Hamptons to Manhattan, and halfway through, you stop in Brooklyn to where the working-class schmoes are. Corona. I think. I'm not really familiar yeah. with that area, but I think Corona is what they call that area in Manhattan and Long Island. And then, so, like, I mean, but, again, it's just the rich have, like, dump off to, to mess with people. And we always talk about this in the class, too. So when you have rich and glamorous, what's the other side of that? It's the, the people that are feeding that or burning and, or, you know, supplying that. And uh, so when you're, you know, using all this energy, you got to have the ashes where they're shoveling, shoveling the supplies for that. So. It's the ultimate kind of nimble. Be, right like we, yeah. we, we need we need them and i mean again what is he doing he's stealing the man's wife yeah right but and he makes a great point that everyone goes through the valley of ashes and you have to stop there's always a light or a train or something there so everyone has a little ash a little dirt on you no matter how clean you pretend to be or act with you are and that's another just very accessible point for them yeah um the haves and haves nots and, and again i mean like we can waylay this so many times so i'm going to i guess but w one of the things that should be a great equalizer is war Right, all the men should stand up, and and Tom doesn't. Right, like because he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. But I bet you, everyone in the Valley of Ashes was either in the war or working towards the war effort, because that's that's what the working class did. Right. And uh, of course, we know that Jay Gatz does, and we'll get there. Yeah. But like, it's just it's so funny that in every way the metaphor is just repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated, and it's it, it works. It and really it, but it's so subtle; it's not beating you over the head, and right. it's something that you again, upon multiple readings, you see unfold at least i did i'm not going to claim that i was it's why we did this and not moby dick because that <laughs> metaphor eventually i get it i get the metaphor 
Which means we're going to get a letter and we're going to have to do Moby Dick at some point. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I need to push myself to read that. And we finish gotta, that. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, but so Myrtle uh, essentially plays the role of Tom's wife. Uh, when they go into the city, she changes her clothes. Again, it's very accessible symbolism for the kids. Um, they go to the top floor that's overstuffed and over-decorated, and just Myrtle is over the top. New money, acting new money, trying to act old money. Right. Uh, but very clearly, like, Tom smacks her when she mentions Daisy, and so he's always the one in charge and, and making making that point. But back to the idea of of awkwardness. So Nick is dragged along with his sort of fraternity brother that he kind of likes, he's not really sure, uh, and brought to the love nest with his, <laughs> he's cheating on his cousin, and he just sits there. Um, and it's just so... It's amazing. Well, but it, it's, it's funny because there's no moralizing either. This is prohibition. There's drinking everywhere. Nick totally never true. says a damn thing. Right. Nobody does. Right. And, and it's just, and it doesn't even seem like it's hard to get alcohol or get anything that they want because well, it wasn't. But. Yeah. And later on where uh, there's a connection between Gatsby and bootlegging, uh, Nick or, or Tom is making this point as he's pouring a drink. So right. the hypocrisy is... is it's delicious in that way. Which, again, it reminds me of the GameStop thing now. Like, you've been using these things forever, <laughs> and now you're fair. upset. <laughs> you're upset that we took advantage of it? Like, uh, whatever. 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 Um, but, yeah, okay, so now we have everyone. Should we talk about our first Gatsby party? Is yeah, that let's go there. Let's jump forward to um, chapter three. So, uh, so in what is a clear joke, a very funny joke, uh, a butler shows up and hands Nick an invitation to a party that everyone comes to. And again, it, it, it must be, it's a formal invite, a formal note card invite to a frat party, right? Like, he, you should just be showing up. Everyone else is just showing up. Right. That's exactly right. Um, so, yeah, why do you think Gatsby does that? It was awkward. <laughs> hey, asshole, it's been he wants to make sure He wants to make sure Nick is there, right? right. And he wants to... Um, Sort of pretend to be. That's what old money people do. He must know. You know that Gatsby has done his research and figured out that Nick is, you know, connected to Daisy, and so he's trying to play by the rules of, of that society. He is, and and it, when nobody else does, and everyone takes advantage of Gatsby, which is something that Daisy points out eventually. Um, but Gatsby is, we find out, doing this specifically to get Daisy. He's staring at the green light that ever the, the metaphor that everyone gets. We 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 get it. It's go. Green means go. Um, and money and, and money and, greed, and all that yeah and as a siren she's literally beckoning him um but this party is again like this is when you're a director and you're Baz Luhrmann or I don't know who directed the Robert Redford one um but like this is the scene you want to direct right this is the this is the giant party at the old mansion and there's jazz and there's booze and there's hundreds of people yeah it's the spectacle it, it looks like that's the party everyone wants to go to and be a part of right I right mean, how can you not want to participate in that it'll be very weird to teach it this year when no one has been to a party uh, <laughs> in 15 months yeah that's a great point it'll just be a cause for anxiety right no i know i just i watch scenes like this and i'm just like oh my god there are people on the subway how are they standing too close to each other i know like my, my new year's eve this year was like me my wife and two single friends and we're just sitting there like with a single bottle of champagne <laughs> I'll put it in the middle of the room and step away. <laughs> I, I like shot the cork out the open door, and then we all stood to the four corners of the room. <laughs> uh, someday we'll get back. Uh, we will. Um, so they, it's a crazy drunken bacchanalia, um, and we see this guy, and there's all sorts of rumors circulating about who Gatsby is. No one knows who he is. No one sees him. 
And again, it's the Simpsons joke at the end of the Rodney Dangerfield episode. Like, where's all this booze coming from? Eh, who cares, Marge? It's a party, <laughs> right? Like, and like, again, you'd think it'd be at least hard to get or people would be like, wow, this is, no, no, no. Just booze is flowing. No one asks the damn question. He might be a serial killer. All right. Well, he's, he's giving us rum punch or whatever. Right, and he, he's buying my dress if I spill something on it. Um, and Jordan has a great line. It's just one of the classic Fitzgerald lines. So it's a crazy party in Jordan. Uh, says, I like large parties. They're so intimate. Yeah. So the idea you get lost in the anonymity of, of a crazy crowd. Um, that's just one that always is a fun one to point out. Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. Well, and I mean, the, the thing we get as well is Nick also doesn't fit in here, but he's trying. Like, he, he of course, is our in everywhere we go, um, like Nick's generally are. Uh, but as far as we kind of understand this world that we're in, he's been invited to a stranger's house and he's very confused by the fact that no one else knows what's going on. Um, but everyone's just always there. Like every Saturday he has these huge parties um, to an empty house um, since no one knows what Jay Gatsby looks like. So here he is. I found it, uh, page 48. Um, they're having this sort of strange conversation and then... Uh, Nick says, um, I live over there. Uh, I haven't seen the host. And for a moment, he looked at me as if he failed to understand. I'm Gatsby, he said suddenly. What? I exclaimed. Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew, old sport. I'm afraid I'm not a very good host. He smiled understandingly, much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across only four or five times in life. It faced, or seemed to face, the whole external world for an instant, then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. It understood you just as far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself, assured you that a precisely impression of you that, at your best, you hoped to convey. Precisely at that point, it vanished. And I was looking at a young, elegant roughneck, a year or two over 30 whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd. Man, it's awesome. It is. Because um, he's so charming, but there's something just a little off about him. Um, and then he just sort of vanishes, um, or that understanding of him vanishes. Again, foreshadowing what happens at the end. Um, where? No, it's, 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 and that's exactly what it is. Like, I, I, was it Bill Clinton that they used to say had like yeah. that cone of like whatever it was, kind of intimacy? Yeah. Like he'd shake your hand and then like the whole world would close off around. Like that's what I get the feeling of. Like it, it sounds like a politician that he kind of smiles at you and everyone warms up immediately and you're the only person in the world for half a second. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, part of your brain realizes he's meeting 30 other people in two minutes here, but I feel special in this moment. Um, and sort of um, being used. So that's our first impression of Gatsby. Charming, a little puzzling, a little bit off, and yet irresistible. Well, and again, it's crazy that the titular character is introduced like a quarter of the way through the novel. Yeah, right. You and, know? And very much a mystery, you know, continuing to build on that. Um, when we first see him, we should say at the end of the first chapter, there's a guy on the end of the docks, literally in the shadows, reaching out. And that's, that's Gatsby right there, in the shadows, the whole novel, reaching out for what maybe he shouldn't be reaching for. Um, yeah, it's just so deftly, deftly structured. Uh, go on. I mean, yeah. So um, where do we go from there? What else do you want to say? Well, I mean, at this point, we've introduced pretty much everyone in the 
in the plot. So we didn't talk about George Wilson so oh, sure. much, but I mean, he was a ghost that Myrtle walked through, so to speak, in the first meeting, and he is very much a ghost and, and pale and washed out in the Valley of Ashes uh, while she's off trying to live vicariously through Tom. Um, I don't know if there's much more to say about him other than that. He's meant as a contrast between Gatsby and, and Buchanan. Well, specifically to Buchanan, who has not worked, it seems, a day in his life. And this guy is working his ass off in the Valley of Ashes just to have everything taken away from him by Tom Buchanan. Yeah. Um, and uh, the last person we'll be introduced to, we really don't have to get to yet, and that's Meyer Wolfsheim. Um, which we'll, we'll get to, and we, we're not even introduced to him until more than halfway through the novel. So yeah, we have some time on him. Um, but I mean, from here, Mike, why don't you talk about where the actual tension comes from here? So the tension comes from like still, why is Gatsby having these parties? Who is he? Everyone's wondering about that. And, and there's some, um, hints of violence and, and crime, um, and then at the same time, there's tension between Nick and Jordan. And like, is, is, are they going to get together or not? What's going on? Um, and Fitzgerald has already shown us Tom having the affair with Myrtle. And so Nick is compromised that way. And he knows, does he tell his cousin? Or what does he do in that situation? So that's an awkward silence. Um, and then in, later in chapter four, uh, Gatsby and Nick go on a drive. And again, it's super awkward. And so early in their relationship, he says, what's your opinion of me anyhow? Like, who asked that? And how do you possibly answer that? And it's so great. And so Gatsby is honestly trying super hard to impress him. Oh, I happen to have my medal here. And I happen to have my... And it's so contrived. And yet it's convincing in its own way. And yeah. so you're through Nick's eyes, you're doubting, getting carried along by the charisma, but you're doubting it all along. And so... I think what carries a novel forward is like, what's going to happen? Is this real? Is this a hoax? Who's who's going to? Um, well, and I mean, I guess what's the truth going to be behind the curtain for us? We just recorded that episode on um, the Devil in the White City, and there are elements of Gatsby that remind me of the H. H. Holmes type. Like it's that charm, it's that overconfidence. He he's effectively, I mean, he is a con man. Like he's made up his whole backstory. Yeah. And what's he doing? He's just checking to see if people still believe him, right? Which is. It's that sociopathic, like, I'm in control, and I'm making sure I'm still in control. And it's, and again, we're, we're meant to almost sympathize with Gatsby because he wants one very specific thing, which he shouldn't have. And yet, like, there's something in the back of Ed Scott Fitzgerald in his creative mind that is sympathetic to this man. And I get it. I, I, I feel I'd rather someone like Gatsby succeed than Buchanan succeed. And yet, the way he's come about it, he's destined. He set himself up to fail, a hundred percent. Which, which is the essence of the novel, right? Repeating yeah. the past, right? And so there's we're giving it away. But Gatsby wants to repeat the past. We learn that he had a history with Daisy when he was a young lieutenant um, stationed outside Louisville, and they had an affair, and he left to go to war, and was hoping that Daisy would be waiting for him when he came back. Right. She didn't wait. She, because a stronger force moved her around. He talked about having agency. Um, and so Gatsby is trying to go back and recapture that. And I mean, it's funny because again, the military uniforms, everyone looks the same and it's just his rank. And that's very specific. Like he shows up in the party in his dress whites and everyone is impressed because this is the South. This is a military society and he looks the part. But when it, he doesn't actually have the money, it's just, 
it all falls apart. And so in his mind, he thinks, I get the money, then I'll have Daisy. I had the love before, I get the money, that's what she wants, I'll do that. Um, so let's get into his scam. Like, where, where, how, does he, how does he become the great Gatsby? Well, we learn later that uh, he's a poor boy in North Dakota, um, just walking on the shore one day, and then there's a rich yachtsman who needs help, swims out and helps the guy and sort of becomes his apprentice and learns the ways of the world uh, through that uh, and ends up getting ripped off, getting um, ripped out of the inheritance by the Dan Cody's um, ex-wife. And so he has to begin again and he goes in the army. Then we learn that he meets Daisy um, and then he just appears on Long Island. And so that's sort of the mystery. How did he go from this lieutenant uh, to having these, you know, this um, palatial estate, these crazy parties, uh, and we never, it's, there's hints along the way, but I don't know how much we want to give away. If you're listening to this, I'm sure most Americans, educated people have read Gatsby, but. Well, and you know what? I'll give them a plug because they, they will never compete with us ever. But uh, Planet Money did this thing on, uh, no, no, I mean, they, they did this thing talking about how the no, copyright right, came yes. out. And so if you want to hear it as an audiobook, it's free to listen to. They yeah. read the whole thing. It's four hours and 15 minutes. You know, you can listen to it in this afternoon. You can hit pause here and switch over and come back. But they do a phenomenal job. It's because the book is so tight and well knit together. It's four hours and 15 minutes read aloud. Like, that's pretty good. Is that quick, really? Oh, wow. It's something like that. I mean, what? It's 180 pages? Yeah, I mean, I could see you getting it through that quick. I know it was a one-man show on Broadway for a while, Gats. And one man had memorized the whole thing. Which, again, sounds impressive, but it's, it is impressive. You can't take away from that, but... Um, yeah, it's so tight and compacted. I can see it being very doable. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I'm just, when the Muppets do it, I, I'll be waiting. Uh, we're we're going to get, what, 10 filmed versions in the next decade, yeah. at least? Yeah, and there's already some rolling out. Uh, so I don't, yeah, I mean, we could go into the conflict arises. So Gatsby is pursuing Daisy. Uh, they have this great uh, reunion scene. Literally, I mean, talk about structural uh, clarity it's almost the exact middle of the book so my book is 182 pages page 89 and 90 where they have the reunion i mean right smack in the middle right and that's the high point not giving too much away but uh after he meets daisy and gets back with her it's sort of the beginning of the end everything is right. built up to this point and then and this is another point you can talk to the kids about um is dreams like when you're really pursuing a dream and when you get that is it everything you hoped? Is that the end of it? Or and what happens next sort of moment? Um, so could Daisy possibly live up to his expectations over these years in between? Um, and then you can also have fun conversations with the students too. Like, is this a sweet story? He's been pursuing her for five years. Or is he a creepy stalker? Uh, I don't know. What's your take on it, Nick? Well, I mean, it just, I wish she had anything to say about it because she doesn't, right? Like, it, it's funny. In some ways, she's almost... It's exciting to her because you know Tom is harassed about, and uh, yeah, it's her revenge of sorts. And and so the fact that someone is interested in her seems to almost entangle her, since she is cooped up in the house the whole time, right? Like over the course of this book, there's like three big parties, four parties, and like the first one is Nick by himself. Second one is him and Jordan. It's the third one when everyone goes to the house finally. And like, which is great. I mean, we can talk about the big dogs barking at each other. Like, oh, you're the, you're that foot, oh, the you're polo the, player, the polo yes. player, the polo player. And you're just like, oh, that is just a kick to the crotch because he hasn't done anything with his money, best right. we can tell. Um, but but he well, doesn't have to. He He's doesn't so have rich, to. right? Yeah, but um, still, it needles him for sure. Needles Tom. Yeah. 
Um, you know, and again, like in this scene uh, in the movie, the one that I'm thinking of, it's Leo DiCaprio and Joel Edgerton, like two like like good looking guys wearing tuxes and. Dude, they're just dogs barking at each other. It's so funny. It's so funny. And when you get to the end, you can always ask this question too. Like, is Daisy worth fighting for? Ultimately, is she worth worth the struggle? Right. I don't know. And I mean, it is clear that Gatsby being completely driven by this one obsession is his downfall, right? It, 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 and if that's the case, it's not necessarily worth it because he has built this house of cards around getting her. There's no out strategy. There's no plan. Exactly. There's nothing. And then the, once he gets her, you're right. His world falls apart because he he hasn't thought about anything other than getting her. And once he gets her, then the loans come due. The world falls apart. I mean, it's it's brutal. And and you could argue, does he really get her? Because there's that showdown scene in the Plaza Hotel. Again, just as an English teacher, set on the hottest day of the year. I mean, there's just there's pathetic fallacy beating you over the head. That's a literary term for the kids, like heat yeah. and, and frustration. Uh, and Daisy has to choose and typical Daisy, she doesn't choose. And so Tom knows he still has her cause she won't do anything for herself. That's right. Um, yeah. So it's, it's sort of inevitable that way, but, um, sad nonetheless. And so I, we can ask this to the kids when we get there in our class, but at the end, do you feel as a reader, either in high school or now having reread it? Do you feel sad for Gatsby? Do you feel like, oh, that pathetic schmuck, he shouldn't have done that? Or what's, what's your feeling about him? I mean, to me, it's almost a critique on the American dream as a whole. Because like, to get to this point, he had to do so many things that are so questionable to make himself appear to be the person that the American dream said should be possible for anyone. That it, like he is the American tragic figure. He's our Hamlet, right? Like he is the guy who did everything that he could to achieve this dream, and it just completely fell apart. I, I, I and now that being said, perhaps it is the dream that is flawed, right? Like, but it for for us, like maybe it's also that it could be just as easily Nick because Nick got everything. Like he is well to do. He went to a good school. He, he, he is trying this. I mean, he's literally dealing in, in, in the market, man. Like we well, facilitate it, right? Yeah. He, he sets Daisy up with um, Gatsby with Gatsby in his house. Yeah. He makes it happen. And it's just, it all just seems like he, maybe he was blinded to this one point. It, it's so interesting because there isn't a hero in this story. <laughs> There's no, I mean, it's a, it ultimately is a very dark novel, um, juxtaposed against the sort of bright celebratory times. And I think that's part of the appeal in that that's the dichotomy, right? There's a lot of brightness and happiness, but there's a darker story underneath. Yeah. Um, and then there, again, I don't know how I'm going to do it tonight in two hours. We're not doing it justice in, in our podcast, but there's so many great scenes, just so well constructed. Um, when they have the reunion, Gatsby's leaning against the wall and knocks over a clock, but it's a defunct clock. So literally time has stopped already and he catches it and tries to put it back. And that's awkward. And, and Daisy is, uh, and then it rains outside. And so there's a renewal, there's a there's sort of hope, but that's right in the beginning of the novel. And that's, um, looking back, once you finish, you realize that was it. That was the moment. Um, and it doesn't live up to it after that. Right, right. Um, do we want to talk about the um, that showdown scene or the end? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's so many places to go. What are you thinking, Nick? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I think we can introduce the last chaotic element, which is the Wolfsheim stuff. We don't have to talk about how it all resolves, but it turns out that Jay Gatz may or may not be running mon- uh, alcohol. Right. Um, uh, we, we, again, among other things, right? It's all conjecture. Uh, Meyer Wolfsheim is associated with the Jewish mafia, and he may or may not be the guy who rigged the Black Sox World Cup, uh, World Series. Well, he, he that's the rumor, and he doesn't seem to deny it, right? Right. Uh, and again, Nick just kind of shows up in a mafia kingpin's office. So, who is that related to historically? Is it, was there one person that fixed the Black Sox? Was that nineteen nineteen? Yeah, the nineteen nineteen World Black Sox scandal. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean it was the mob, and they try to link it to the the players. Um, yeah, she was Joe Jackson and all that. But I, I just wondered if Fitzgerald was basing that Wolf, well, Wolfsheim on a particular. The, Jewish gangster, perhaps? Or yeah, a guy know. named uh, Arnold uh, Rothstein. Okay. Uh, who died in 28. Uh, so he's probably actually exactly based on him. Um, and he was <laughs> murdered after a fixed poker game. Uh, so there you go. Uh, apparently when he died, it was part of the downfall of Tammany Hall and leads to the rise of uh, Fiorello LaGuardia. So there you go. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Um, but yeah, so, you know, all these things are tied together. Uh, Meyer Wolfsheim would be a kind of, <laughs> he was the mentor of Loki Luciano. Well, there you go. Yeah, good crowd. Yeah. A rotten crowd, as they say in the novel. That's right. Um, but yeah, so he was the brain. He was the one who fixed the World Series. So that, that, that's your connection to the ground. I do like the idea that he just meets this guy and he's like, yeah, I'm not coming to the funeral. <laughs> You're just like, all right, all right, great, I guess. Yeah, uh, so there's hints all along the way that Gatsby is mixed up in some shady stuff, which makes sense how you get this money so quickly. But it doesn't go too deep into that. But it's just enough to be mysterious. Um, but again, he's going to do anything to get Gat- uh, to get Daisy. You sort of admire that spunk and gumption, but then he's doing it illegally. Does that complicate your relationship or your thoughts on Gatsby? That's part of the ambiguity, I think, that makes the novel so good. It does. It does. And again, like best we can tell, Tom has been legitimate with his businesses. He just inherited it. He, he, he like uh, he just comes from an he he himself is immoral. So he, you really have a couple of winners here. It's so interesting. Like what uh, when Daisy is waffling, or a flashback scene when Daisy is waffling, um, or she's about to marry Tom, but gets a letter that you can sort of read between the lines. It comes from Gatsby. Like I'm back. Um, the night that she's supposed to get married. And then Tom gives her a wedding gift of a $350,000 pearl necklace, which in today's money is like a million dollars or something. So, and that's just a little, a little trinket before they get married. Um, And so sort of Daisy sells herself out for that. Um, Which again, you, you always ask that to the kids, like how much money would it take? For you to marry someone that you aren't completely in love with, is there a price? And you hate to ask that question, but well, but, but I mean that's that's the question here. Like, and well, what will you do for money? Right? Well, well, what will you do for money? But also, like Gatsby clearly has no point of reference other than well, she married him for money, so I should make money. Like, it's it's there's also, a logic to that. Yeah, it's 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 just so fascinating of character motivations, right? Like, because neither of them really care who's in their wake until it all catches up with them. And frankly, you know, her, him being obsessed with Daisy, uh, Gatsby being obsessed with Daisy is what hastens this along because then Tom gets involved trying to figure out where his money comes from. Right. Like all of it is just so 
self-destructive. It's it's incredible. Um, do you want to leave the end to the people who haven't read it? Yeah, I mean, we can leave the end other than saying that um, after the showdown scene, should we talk about Myrtle's end, I think? Yeah, let's do that. So the showdown scene in the plaza, um, Daisy is essentially a trophy, literally going back and forth between the two guys. Um, as we said before, Tom is confident because Daisy says, I loved you both. And Gatsby wants it all to say that she never loved Tom. She can't do it. And so they head back and they're driving symbol alert, theme alert, car crash coming. Um, and uh, they hit, Myrtle gets hit by the car. And it's the same car going into town. I don't know if we want to go there. Do we need to explain that pop, plot point? The, they have an afternoon in the Buchanan's. It's the hottest day of the year. They sort of asininely say, let's go into the city um, when they're in the countryside. And so they have like a car race into the city where Tom is driving Gatsby's car and Gatsby's driving Tom's car and just sort of a, trying to one-up each other. So they drive by the Valley of Ashes and Myrtle sees that. So she associates one car with Tom, who's actually Gatsby's car. Coming back, um, Daisy is driving Gatsby's car now and Myrtle runs out thinking it's Tom and gets hit and dies. Right. And the question I always ask the kids is, did she know that was Myrtle and did she purposefully hit her i don't know what do you think i mean it could just be horrible dramatic irony right um i i don't know it it it, it ties the move the book so nicely together i don't want to question it it, it also it could be which is what you keep going back to because you th and it would be the one piece of agency she has to kill someone <laughs> right. um you know, and have someone else cover it up, which is what immediately happens right. with Gatsby trying to cover it Gatsby up. Gatsby tries to cover it up, and then Tom tries to cover it up. Uh, then there's a scene later on where Gatsby hides the car, and he rushes back to Buchanan's house waiting for da Daisy to run out so they can go off and be together. And he's sitting in the darkness watching her again. And there's the, there's the theme of voyeurism. There's the theme of watching. Uh, and, you know, sort of uh, beautifully put Tom and... Uh, Daisy are eating over a plate of cold chicken, which is nice. Like she's too chicken to do anything about it. Um, and he says he's staring over nothing. That's the end of the chapter. So he's looking at them. And I think that's uh, Fitzgerald's comment through Nick that these two aren't worth anything. They're nothing. Yeah. Daisy, of course, doesn't do anything. Um, and Tom facilitates the idea that uh, Gatsby hit Myrtle. He does. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, you know... We'll so we gave away the ending, almost. Well, I mean, we, we can also let uh, what happens to actual Gatsby come up, for those of you who want to read it. Although we we kind of already gave that away, too, didn't we? Yeah, I mean... He, he gets killed by... He Wolf. dies, yeah. He, Wolfsheim's men come and shoot him in the back, and he falls in the... No, pool. Wilson comes and kills him. Oh, Wilson him. does, Yeah, so. Wolfsheim doesn't have anything to do with it. He just doesn't show up to the funeral. Right, and right. he washes his hands of it. Um, and so, yeah, the question I always said, does... So I asked the kids, does Daisy tell Tom that I hit him, or does he, she let Tom think that Gatsby was doing the driving? If she lets Tom think that, you can sort of justify, well, Tom's going to go out and get revenge, so to speak. But if Tom knows it was Daisy, then it's even more subversive and more evil in that he's covering up for vehicular slaughter, manslaughter. Uh, we get the, wife. I guess, uh, something else is we get that they used to live in Chicago but had to move because of his last affair. Right. And so this may be her just like putting her foot down or something, which is, 
again, would be interesting. Yeah. Um, um, and so we get to the end. Uh, Gatsby gets shot in the pool. Um, Wilson kills himself. And then there's the line that the Holocaust was complete, which you always have to complain or explain to kids because they think Holocaust, they think of, you know, German extermination program. Sure. But the, again, Fitzgerald is so tight and so sort of, you know, he's um, anticipating this. I don't know if he's anticipating, but it's just a strange coincidence that the Holocaust comes later. And Wolfsheim, I think, works for the Swastika Holding Company or something. Yeah. Um, which is purely coincidental, but it's weird that both those terms are in this book. Yeah, the end of chapter um, seven, no, eight, is um, it was after we started toward the house that the gardener saw Wilson's body a little way off in the grass and the Holocaust was complete. So Wilson, who's associated with the Valley of Ashes, the Holocaust, the consumption by fire, the consumption by passion, uh, boom, right there. Just It's a nice, nice ending that ties all those things together. It's so tightly constructed that way. Um, and then there's the famous line later um, where Nick is talking about uh, the Buchanans, and they were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. Um, I mean, there's a theme alert for America, right? Yeah. That money allows you to get away with things that other other situations might not. Um, and then there's the beautiful ending. I don't know if we want to go there or talk about that. The very last line? The last paragraph yeah, or so. Yeah, do it. Read so it. So he um, wraps up, and as Nick is uh, reflecting, uh, he's sitting sort of outside the house and looking over the sound, the same sound that Gatsby was looking over before. So again, you get this idea of looking over, voyeurism, watching, thinking, reflecting. Um, I'll, I'll read the last couple paragraphs. I'll try to do them justice. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away gradually until I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world, its vanished trees, the trees that made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this, presence of this continent, compelled into aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired face-to-face -face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. So I'll just stop there. Um, I mean, that's our American experiment class right there. 100%. So the idea of American exceptionalism, America is this land for new beginnings, uh, dreaming, sort of taking this universal uh, look at new beginnings there. And then back to the, to the novel. And as I sat there brooding on the unown, old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow, we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. The end. That's so good. Man, it's so good. So good. Uh, 
I mean, what do you think? I, I mean, I can talk about the language of that all the time, but um, I'm just curious on your impressions. Well, I mean, what's interesting is how this narrative even works, right? And so uh, that, that's kind of why I like that Baz Luhrmann puts him like almost in an asylum writing out his thoughts because this seems like almost he stepped out of the story and is trying to put together something, right? Like Exactly. And it, it's and in that way, it's it just ends. It, it I'm followed by two blank pages, right? Like as though just figure it out for yourself. I, I I love that that last line. So we beat on votes against the current. It's so powerful. Like and again, he says Gatsby's great flaw is that he's looking towards the past, which is something we want to do, and yet we're both speeding against the current effortless or. With all effort, trying to go forward, it's it's perfect. Yeah, we just keep getting pulled back, pulled back, pulled back. Um, just as Nick is, he's obviously dealing with this. Just as um, Gatsby is himself. Obviously, you could think about us as a country. We're trying to go forward, but we're still dealing with our past and and everything that reckons it. And just the the is it optimistic? Is it pessimistic? In, in one fine morning, and there's an extra long dash there. So what happens that fine morning? Do you get the dream? Or is it always eluding you? It's so beautiful. And if you don't know, Fitzgerald has this on his tombstone. There's a whole interesting story about that, and that um, he wasn't allowed to be buried in the Catholic cemetery in Boston because they viewed him as a drunk and a ne'er-do-well. Finally, over time, they finally relented and got the bishop's approval to be buried there. Um, I'm but not it's appropriate, gonna, you know, epitaph for sure. I'm not even going to make the joke about not letting an Irish and being drunk in a Catholic <laughs> cemetery. Um, we should, I guess, give him his reprieve, which is in World War II, this becomes a smash success because it's such a small book that the War Department gives it out by the hundreds of thousands. And right. so the generation that go to school under the GI Bill to become teachers all read it in the trenches and it becomes the underground hit of the 40s and 50s. And yeah, the Armed Service Edition, which I realized I was looking online for images to share tonight. It was published in landscape, so it's published in sort of horizontally, um, which I guess maybe you get more words per page or something, so it's a smaller book. But yeah, the Armed uh, Forces Edition, Armed Service Edition, they published uh, in 1943 through 45, 155,000 uh, editions of Gatsby. And I read, and you might know this, that for each one that they published, it was read roughly seven times. Like, GIs would pass them around. Sure. And so I think Gatsby, I wrote it down somewhere, I think only sold 21,000 copies or maybe 30,000 in Fitzgerald's lifetime. And then five it was times. the war. Yeah, five times that, plus the readership. But you're right, those are the guys that come back and start to teach, and then it sort of has a revival. And arguably, the sells 500,000 or more every year. Sure. And is it the great American novel? Uh, I don't know. What else would there be? Tuck Finn, maybe? Yeah. But, but that, that, that's a different world. Yeah. It's of its time. This is sort of timeless in its own way. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and every generation, they try to remake it. I, for a while there, I was reading uh, Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, and that feels very much like this, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's no question for both of us it holds up, and it's worth teaching, and it's worth rereading. If you're, if you're someone who's listening to this just to hear what we have to say, Reread this one. Yeah, that's, that's a better use of your time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know if it made any sense, but there's so much to this book. We could do a whole season on Gatsby, I think. And um, people would stop listening. Uh, but, <laughs> if they haven't already. Right. Uh, so what are you reading, Mike? Uh, let's see. I've been reading a lot of Gatsby, obviously. I finished the um, Maureen Corgan book um, And Tim O'Brien. 
I've uh, been looking back. Yeah, I'm about halfway through um, the things they carried again for the umpteenth time. Sure. So good. So, so good. Um, look forward to talking about that. That would be a fun one for us to do, too. Uh, sure would. Sure would. How about you, Nick? Uh, well, if you want to read a little bit about uh, this American life, so to speak, uh, I rewatched over Christmas break uh, American Splendor with Paul Giamatti. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I've been rereading some uh, Harvey P. Carr, which, right. again, is just... The guy in Cleveland, Ohio. I mean, he's not as exciting as this, but it's day-to-day life. Uh, if you want to read something more recent, there's a book called Wilson, which is very similar by Daniel Close. Um, which Graphic novel? Yeah. yeah. Uh, which got made into a movie starring Woody Harrelson a few years back. I haven't seen oh, it. Oh, really? But I, I know just, that. Whatever. Um, but if you want a book, a history book, because that's me, uh-huh. there's a book called The Disappearing Spoon that I read, uh, uh-huh. which is a history of... Uh, all the elements on the periodic table, but told through stories. Like it's not oh, really? a science book; it's a history book, and all the weird stories about how chemicals were discovered oh, and cool. the space race and you know nuclear bombs and it's neat. It, right. it, it, it'll flow. And there's a couple things that went over my head uh, just not being a scientist, but it's totally fun, totally enjoyable. I recommend it. Highly. And somebody this weekend, I think you've read, and maybe we've talked about the Sapiens. Did you read that? Before? I've read Sapiens. It's okay. good. Somebody else recommended me this weekend, so I got to put that on my list. Yeah, yeah. it's good. I read it uh, last year. You, you'll like it. Okay. Uh, world history. Cool. Um, but yeah, so uh, thanks for listening. Uh, do we know what our next episode is going to be? I don't know. We haven't really talked about it. Well, if you guys have suggestions, the uh, Hobbit as a possibility, right? Oh, should we get Robert von Hagen? That would be good. Um, and I know uh, uh, Tom, Tom, and Mary are here. Wants us to do Sophocles. Which is okay. So uh, we'll 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 get back if to. We you. sit in a room with Tom. He'll just talk. I'll let him go. <laughs> <laughs> I defer to his wisdom. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so maybe next time we'll be back with a college counselor and the Hobbit. Cool. Uh, yep. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So how do you feel about that one? I don't know. I-